morning, good day, good afternoon, good evening, good night, good people. You are listening to another episode of Music and We. I am Jamila, and we have another special guest. Today, we have Stephen, also known as Old Head. Old Head is a podcaster, a radio host, a YouTube creator, and a music lover who describes himself, and I quote, as a low-rent Zach Wilde who gets diarrhea <laughs> of the mouth. That, uh, that's not mine. That's that some, uh, Somebody put that in a YouTube comment, and I just stole it from them. Nice. <laughs> I'm definitely interested in about hearing that one. Hello, old head, Steven. Hello. 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 Thanks for having me. So I want to ask you about the birth of old head, because when I think of someone who's an old head, it's usually someone who's playing dominoes in the park, just an old dude playing dominoes in the park, or someone yeah. who's an old school hip hop head. So for you, what does old head mean? Where does that come from? Okay, so it begins with old school hip hop head, because I'm also that. I've always... I played in bands for like 25 years, all these different failing bands. I was a guitarist and a vocalist and a songwriter, and... I just failed and failed and failed. And then when I got to my late thirties, I just went, fuck, I don't want to do this anymore. So I quit my last band, but I realized that like, I, I love talking about music so much. And I just obsess about it that people would always say, you should start a YouTube channel. You should start a podcast. You should do something. Eventually I started seeing so many more podcasts and YouTube channels where I, I would watch them and go, I could do way better than that. And I have way more to say than that. So I'm just like, all right, I'm going to do it. It was the, the beginning of the year in 2019. I decided I was going to do a podcast and I came up with the name old head because I always liked how it sound. I, I was always like, well, usually I hear it referred to with old school hip hop, old heads are into the old school stuff and they don't really like the new stuff. And I'm like, well, that's me. And that's me with metal and rock music. I like, my some 70s but mostly 80s and 90s and you know some newer stuff but for the most part i feel very much like an old head when it comes to that music and then on top of that it was kind of a funny joke because i was turning 40 and i was like okay i'm old now so it was just kind of like a, a layer of things of me poking fun at myself being finally being the older guy that isn't into the young hip music anymore and it just became a thing where as soon as I started using that name and making podcasts and then moving over to uh, YouTube videos, it just felt so perfect for me. And it kind of came with, I do music on my own occasionally under the name supporting actor. You can find it on like Apple music and Spotify and everything. But I wrote a song called old head in 2018, I think was when I did that one. And it, it was kind of all about how I feel about not just music now, but also the way people view how you're supposed to just all of a sudden blow up without really having earned your earned your stripes, as it were, or pay your dues as what's his name? Who's, who did pay your dues? The old school hip hop song. Anyway, it's a good song. But uh, yeah, so all those things together, I just went, this name's perfect. And then once I started hearing people just calling me that, like other videos, they'd be like, oh, I watched old head stuff. And I go, oh, no, that sounds good. That sounds good. I'm keeping that. And so far, nobody's come to call me out on it and, you know, tell me I can't use it for whatever reason. So, you know, at this point, it's been over four years. So I think it's mine, you know. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Oh, it. That's interesting that they came from the 
hip hop element for you too. Cause I was like, wait a minute. That's, that's some hip hop. Oh yeah. I, I got into hip hop before I got into rock music nice. and in the early eighties, one of my cousins who was a little bit older than me, he had raised in hell by run DMC. This was like, you know, so it was 86 or so. I was just so floored by that music and I loved it. And it was very shortly after that, that I started getting into, you know, like Cinderella and Guns N' Roses and all of that stuff. Van Halen was a big thing, but hip hop was the first music I ever heard where I went, this sounds like something special. And that didn't happen again until I really got into like thrash metal later on. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> so getting into you playing music for me, my first instrument was a guitar Mm -hmm. And the band who inspired me to play, I've mentioned this on other episodes, but Mud Honey was the band that actually inspired me to pick up a guitar. Nice. And I don't really play guitar as much as I used to. I use it mostly to accent stuff. I do mostly bass, guitar, and drums, and specifically drums. Mm -hmm. And I initially, in terms of drums, was inspired by David Levering of the Pixies and Hugo Burnham of Gang of Four. So I really oh. like a lot of the post-punk kind of stuff. Yep. And I also grew up with mostly hip-hop, R&B, that kind of stuff. And then when I was ooh, tweens, I guess, that's when mm -hmm. I started getting into rock music and then really getting into hardcore. And I was about 14, hardcore and some metal stuff around there. And then the rest is history. <laughs> but yeah. with the bass, I was inspired by, again, the post-punk stuff and people like Ja Wobble. And I think that inspires my playing today. And overall, though, my main musical inspiration right now is Lars Ulrich. And there are reasons <laughs> beyond music why this is the case. But I just wanted to ask you what inspired you to pick up a guitar. And I know you said, oh, I'm not that good at it. You've mentioned this on your YouTube videos but what inspired you to pick up a guitar and to sing and uh are those same people your inspirations or has uh, that shifted over time so i mean the first part of the answer is that is probably well i i was really into like metallica and anthrax and stuff like that and i was fascinated by people in bands and it wasn't until nirvana so 91 when i started really going i maybe i can do this so it was it was kurt cobain because i was the perfect age for that i was 13 years old around that time and i was i felt i just felt a kinship with kurt cobain and so his songwriting his guitar i, I play about as good as kurt cobain just so you know that's like that's you, about how how you good have a, i am you have a jaguar you have a no no you just you just inspired by the guitar playing just the yeah, well, just the overall feel of it. It wasn't necessarily. Yeah. I'm I'm not a gear person at all. I've had the same guitar for 20 years. Oh, look at and that! It's a it's a Schecter, and it's oh. uh it's modeled almost like a a Gibson. Um, is it is it an SG? No, it's not an SG. I'm bad with guitars. That's it's fine. a but <laughs> but it's a it's gold and it's just it's very nice and I liked it enough and it never broke so I never got another guitar. Um, but, but that's before you before you finish that's another thing I really like about what you do because I do have particular guitars that I love like mm -hmm. I love a SG I love a Jazzmaster I love a Les Paul but mm -hmm. I enjoy when people play music love playing music and have no idea what any of the gear is no and 
I have no idea what, if you ask me to play a G, I have no idea what that is. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I've never, I never learned to read music, which is, it's, it's so, I know it had to have been frustrating for people I was in bands with because I would write entire songs, but the way that I write songs is I come up with a riff. I would back in the day record it on a cassette and just sort of play it and string it together and then write some lyrics. And then I would show up to practice and be like, okay, put your fingers on the second fret. (laughs) And and that's the way that I would teach people how to play songs. But so, so Kurt Cobain was a big deal, but it was mostly just the energy and the sort of music that didn't really seem like it fit anywhere because it was heavy. But I think punkers probably wouldn't call it punk. Metalheads wouldn't call it metal. It's too heavy to be alternative. That just really spoke to me. And then once I started playing in bands, because I lived in Austin, Texas at the time, and there was basically no metal scene there whatsoever. So I had to figure out where I was going to go in that land. And I was in like some punk bands. But once I was really sort of in control and trying to put together my own bands, I always wanted a band that sounded like Fugazi. That's what I wanted to do. So I spent a good amount of time playing in several different bands that sounded like some kind of post-hardcore kind of Fugazi-ish kind of thing. So I would say that probably that that band, you know, you're talking about drums, bass, vocals, the things that inspire you. Literally every person in Fugazi is a musician that I look at and go, fuck, man, that that guy is insane. We're, we're going to get to that one. <laughs> I want to talk to you about the one thing you did. You started doing some short videos or short, shorter format videos. And one of them you did was picking four people in your dream band. Oh, yeah. So... Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk with you a little about that because that was interesting for me. Looking at that, I wish that there were other folks because the folks well, that were on that picture is like, I'm yeah. going to pick them, but I would. That pick was the whole Fugazi. I mean, that's who I would pick. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, because that was the whole point of that thing is limiting myself to what was on that picture. Right. So yeah. I was looking at that and I said, okay, if I were to pick just a band that I was not in. I said Bill Ward. And so when I would play drums when I was in my 20s, one of the things that inspired me was Behind the Wall of Sleep. So Mm -hmm. I used to just kind of jack that beat when we were just practicing or whatever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I picked Bootsy Collins, Jimi Hendrix, and Prince. So that would be my dream band of just the band that I'm not in. If I was in the band, I would be playing drums and then Cliff Burton would be on bass. And I said Cliff because he's, I think, a little bit more versatile where he wasn't just a metal player. Yeah. Yeah. He played like a, a lead guitar player at some points, but he also was into classical music. He was into REM. He was into varying types of music where I think if you were to play with a somebody like uh tony naomi or something like that who's just seen as just a metal player i said cliff i said dave grohl kurt cobain and me on drums (laughs) so getting to your point because i think those were the most punk quote-unquote out of the folks on the list yeah and so what i want to ask you is your dream show of all time if you could think of that my dream show oh. is Earth, Wind, and Fire and Parliament Funkadelic 1975. Do you okay. have a dream show? 
so like a, a specific show, like an actual show that occurred or would have would have occurred at a particular time? It could be a particular show or it could be a show that you want to see put together at any oh. time and space. The the one show that actually that I know actually occurred that I didn't go to because I couldn't. I was too young at the time um, was in 91 when Nirvana came through and played this tiny venue in Austin. I've heard the audio of the show. And I'm just like, imagine being in this little room. I mean, it probably held, I don't know, 500 people at the most would, would have been that room. Just the fact that I would have loved to have been there. I never got to see them. And I would love to have been in a little venue for that kind of uh, power and stuff. If I could put together anything, man, I don't, I, it's really tough because I don't, I don't enjoy shows i think in the way that some other people enjoy shows because i wouldn't want to go see some big festival with tons of people that had just shitloads of really good bands because that would be fun and all but i would want it to be more of an intimate experience because metallica is my favorite band of all time i would love to go see them when they were doing clubs i'm gonna say this i would love to go to one of those shows they did in england right before cliff died that had anthrax opening up for them that would be that would be an amazing show i was thinking you would have said the 100 club show or something like that where they did isn't that the show they did uh crash course and brain surgery i think the one and oh. the time they did crash course and brain surgery i think that was the 100 club in london oh wow i mean i I don't have I don't really think about things like that. But yeah, I do. I more think about actual shows that I know that I missed yeah. that that came to my town. And I went, oh, okay, I didn't I didn't go to that. But that's been me my entire life because I'm like a big a big reason why doing my videos and podcast is so good for me is because I'm very introverted and nervous and anxious. I don't like going places. Most of the time I go out to shows but I have to have beers as soon as I walk in the door. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's in my whole life. There's been so many concerts that I've just said, Oh, I really want to go to this, but I don't want to go out. <laughs> and so, so I've missed a lot of things throughout my life. I'm trying to be better about it now. Now that I'm older, I handle myself better. So I try to go to more shows now, but um, especially post pandemic, now that things are rolling again, I'm like, well, I might as well take advantage of the fact that these bands are coming to my town. So, yeah. And you're going to some of the M72 shows? I'm going to the two that are going to be broadcast in theaters. You are going to that. Wow. <laughs> yeah, because it's going to be in Arlington, Texas, which is about, you know, three or four hours away from me. Wow. Um, but I'm making a whole, my wife and I are making a whole trip out of it. Got, got hotels and we're just going to go stay up there. And um, I'm probably going to throw make a video out of the whole thing. I'm trying desperately to avoid looking at their set lists because I don't want to know what they're playing. And that's really tough. Yes. Uh, I can tell you that the shows that were played over this past weekend, no St. Anger songs. I'm pretty sad about that. Oh, do, 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 just, just let me dream about that. Because like, honestly, like they, they would probably, a lot of fans would hate my dream show for, from Metallica because not only would they play a lot of St. Anger, they played, they would play Escape for yes. fucking sure. Yes. <laughs> so my dream, which I know this is not going to happen. This is why I'm saying it for the download. I'm going to the download festival. My mm -hmm. dream, because one of the shows is on June 10th, which was the original release date for St. Anger. So oh. my dream is that on June 10th, 
which is the 20th anniversary of St. Anger, they will do the full album. Oh, that would be that would be great. That's my dream. I know they're not doing it, which is why I'm saying it. <laughs> yeah. I I I I wish that they would play some. They have two, they did two shows in a row. They didn't play anything off Saint Anger. I, that's that's. I want. I wonder if they're catering to like where they're playing. Like maybe Saint Anger is not as big. Like did they, did they play like Argentina or something? What, what did they, where did they play? They played Amsterdam. Amsterdam. I knew it started with an A. <laughs> but yeah, I've, I'm on because like you know for for all of my promotion stuff, I'm all over all the social media stuff, and I follow Metallica everywhere and and other fans. And all I have to, I, I just try my best to just scroll past. Don't yeah. look. Don't read anything. I don't want to know anything. I want to be completely surprised when I go see them because I know I know they're going to play Inner Sandman and Nothing Else Matters and, and Seek and Destroy, three songs that they could just remove from their set, and I would be fine with it. But yeah, I'm more looking forward to whatever surprises there are. So there yeah. will be. I'll tell you that there yeah. will be. And the funny thing about that is. I first saw them December 3rd, 1991. They opened the show with Inner Sandman. The next time I saw them was at the 40th anniversary show. So it was a 30-year time span. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And let me tell you, they did Sandman at one of those shows. And that changed a lot for me, just understanding the power of that song and how excited most people got. And I know for you or I, it's like, okay, Sandman. But... I am at the stage in my life where I'm not going to knock what people connect with. So, oh, yeah. I, I'm not yeah, saying I, you're saying that, but yeah. I just see so many people complain. Why are you playing Sandman? Why are you doing this? Duh, 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 duh. You should play this. It's like, A, Lars is the person who puts the set list together in accordance to what you're saying, like what has happened at any given time the last time they played. So maybe they played a bunch of St. Anger last time. I don't know. But yeah, yeah. Well, also, also, I think they're smart enough to know that every Metallica show is potentially somebody's first Metallica show. Yes. So they have to play Inner Sandman. They have to play Master of Puppets. They because these are the song. These are like bucket list songs for new fans. Yes, absolutely. So I told. I totally. I totally get it. That's that's you went. So you got to go to a 1991 show. I didn't get to go to that. That came through Austin, and I didn't. I didn't get to see Metallica until 1994. When they came through, it was the tail end of the Black Album tour. So they had, I think they had actually stopped touring to start recording Load and then came out of the studio and did another tour. And they played with Candlebox, Suicidal Tendencies, Fight. I think that was it. It was supposed to be Alice in Chains, but Lane went into rehab. Right. And they opened with uh, Bread Fan, I believe, was that, that show. And then the next show I went to, was in 1996 or seven. All I know is it was it was the show right before the show they filmed for Cunning Stunts. Oh wow! Because so, Cunning Stunts was filmed in San Antonio, and I saw him in Austin. It was the next show. Wow! Um, and that was when they started with So What mm-hmm. like that on that tour, right. and that that was fun. But then I didn't see them again until the Death Magnetic tour. And I don't even remember. Oh, they started with that was just your life. And then Hardwired, I saw them on that and they started with Hardwired. So Wow. Yeah, that's when they did uh, Hardwired to Atlas Rise, right? They started with those two. Yeah. My favorite thing, my favorite thing about that show, the last one I went to for Hardwired was they took a song I didn't like as much 
from Hardwired and made it one that I will always remember. And that was Now That We're Dead, because I like that song, but that's when they got out the big drums right. and they all they all left their instruments and started playing the drums. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, now I love that song because every time I hear that part, I go, oh, I just remember the drums of that part of the uh, of the show. And that was I was really cool. Yeah, that's it was beautiful to see. Obviously, I've seen the videos of those, but it's beautiful to see. I think that was a time James was really in his element when he was really happy because he got to play drums because he always called himself a frustrated drummer or something like that. And Lars yeah. was a frustrated guitarist. <laughs> <laughs> so he was having a lot of fun with that. Yeah. Yeah. It was cool. It was a, something that they had never done before. And that's, I like it when they do that, when they, when they do something new. Absolutely. And even when Rob and Kirk did their doodles, I think they oh. always tried to do something that shook up the, regular shows and some people were like, I don't know whether yeah they always did stuff that was relevant to where they were playing yes uh, and so I saw them in Lubbock Texas and so they played a Buddy Holly song nice yeah <laughs> very nice <laughs> yeah it was cool oh man so I wanted to talk about you possibly considering yourself to be a content creator. I don't know how you define that. So I wanted to ask you, because I make music. There's this podcast. I have several blogs. I make films. I made a six-hour movie about St. Anger. <laughs> what? Is it? Yeah. Can, it what, can I see it? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, you can see it. I'll, show, I'll totally send it to you. <laughs> oh, I would love that. What, what, what is it? What is it about? Besides, I mean, is it a, is it a is it like a thrown together it's, documentary? It's a documentary where I interviewed a bunch of people about their love for St. Anger. And then it was talking about my own journey to come to love St. Anger. Oh, my God. So I, I missed out. I, I wish I had known you before that. So I could have been part of it. Well, I'm actually making a movie about 72 seasons, and the catch is this. It's only going to be 72 minutes. Nice. So I'll, I'll, if you want me to be a part of that, absolutely, I will. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Thank you. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the answer to your question, I absolutely consider myself a content creator, especially over the past couple of years, because I do way more work for what I do than what I get paid. <laughs> Because I find myself, I'm always doing something every single day of the week. Like I have a regular day job, but luckily I get to work from home. But I'm constantly making notes for an episode of Cranked and Ranked, or I'm planning a video that I'm going to be filming. And now that I do a radio show on, on this AMP app that's out now, I'm putting together set lists for my radio shows. And really... Up until recently, the only thing I ever got paid for was YouTube. And I don't know if it, it's because I'm such a niche, you know, audience for what I do. There's not a lot of traffic. And so like I'll get every two months, I get about 120 bucks for my work. That's it. And so the fact that I still do it and I'm still so active and every single week doing stuff and I'm active on the socials and I'm trying to meet new people and I'm doing whatever I possibly can. I'm like, if anybody needs to be called a content creator is me. <laughs> so. Are there content creators who inspired you? You saw when like, you know, I know you mentioned that you looked at other content creators and said, you know, I, have this thing that I want to contribute that I haven't been seeing, but are there yeah. any specific creators that 
uh, inspired you to do the type of content you do? There's only one because I honestly, like I, all of the YouTube, the metal YouTubers I was seeing were either not interesting enough for me or they were real pretentious seeming. And I, I didn't like that either. The big name that inspired me would be Sam Dunn from Banger TV who did metal a headbangers journey and everything mm -hmm. because i'm not really a big fan of banger anymore because it's gone down a different route or i'm just i'm just it doesn't connect with me at all anymore but when it was mostly just sam talking and doing his reviews and doing his stuff i would be like i'd like to hang with that dude and just talk music and that he was a person that could do an entire documentary on metal and i'm like he talked about it perfectly that's what i want to do so it would it would have it would have been sam done you're talking about the pretentiousness of metal content creators. I am not a metalhead. I don't know a lot of the content creators, but it's interesting to see what people do gravitate towards too. And one of my favorite episodes you did was the Fugazi one. Fugazi is one of my favorite bands of all time. Yeah. They're actually my third favorite band of all time. So seeing someone else give love to Fugazi makes me really happy. <laughs> and yeah. In terms of Fugazi, like their ideologies, what they do closer to where I stand ideologically, and I'm probably yeah. even more left of Fugazi if you want to. <laughs> but it's funny because my favorite band is Earth, Wind & Fire of all time. That will probably never change. Metallica is my second favorite band, which Fugazi and Metallica, I think they're on the opposite ends of the spectrum and many other yeah. things where you're yeah. talking about politically, merchandise, etc. And then Mud Honey is four and Funkadelic five. So for those who haven't seen or heard your content, yeah. your five favorite bands and why? Um, my five, this is giving away a video that I'm about to do. Hey, because I did because I've been I've been doing my top twenty bands of all time over on YouTube. I I already talked about Fugazi. Fugazi ended up um somewhere in the teens, mm -hmm. but my favorite band of all time. I, I can I can do the, my my top three because it's not a surprise. Metallica is my favorite band of all time. Nirvana is my second favorite band of all time, and Anthrax is my third favorite band of all time. Yeah. <laughs> my rankings of those kind of things, I've just gone full personal because music for me, as I've gotten older, I've leaned into the feeling and not so much the thinking part of it. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of the thinking that goes on because I'm just an obsessive fan. But I've really started to take in the feelings that music gives me. And that's why, like, Anthrax is a band that I've loved forever, but they moved so quickly up to the top of the list just because of how so much of their music just makes me feel like the anxiety will go away, my worries will go away, whatever. Like, they're a band that can make that happen. And so that's a really big deal for me with, with my favorite bands. So a song like NFL or something like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that's a good one. But I mean, I love the John Bush era of Anthrax as well. Like I just, yeah. I love, it's just everything that they've done and the fact that you can throw on, you know, two different Anthrax albums and you'll get kind of a different vibe on both of them. Not to mention the hip hop stuff that they, they were a part of. Like it's all very important stuff to me. So that's another thing I wanted to talk with you about because the music world or fandoms, I should say, seem so compartmentalized. So even in the metal scene, when you're saying your two of your three favorite bands are Anthrax and Metallica. Yeah. And 
there's this whole stereotype that Anthrax fans don't like Metallica fans and vice versa. And then in the middle is Nirvana. Yeah. Oh, it's so fascinating to me. And then you also being a fan of old school hip hop. Have you run into any folks calling you a poser or just really defending their line and attacking yours in terms of your love for music? Not really calling me a poser. I do get people that the few hip hop things that we've done, people feel the need to chime in and say, I don't come here for this kind of content. And I'm just like, well, I, I've made hundreds of videos. Can I do one <laughs> about a hip hop right. group? Um, mostly it's just on, on a social media thing. Like the people that I've actually talked to or met or, or you know, had an actual conversation, nobody ever says anything. Everyone kind of just, that's the thing. The internet has made everybody, you know, into tough guys when they're behind their keyboards. And then you're around people, nobody's going to call you a poser for the things that you're into, to your face anyway. I've heard a lot of people tell me that they love the fact that I have a love for metal and for hip hop because they also have it. Because a lot of people agree that the two styles of music have a lot in common. And they both really like started coming together in the 70s and then they had their heydays in the 80s. And it's very rhythmic and sometimes aggressive and energetic music that pisses some people off. And so I'm just like, they're perfect. They're, they go perfectly together. I mean, I guess now with modern music, there's a lot of like really safe hip hop now. It's not as dangerous. It's soccer moms are, are into Drake or whatever. But still, I think that there's enough people that still hate rap enough that it still has that power of like, well, yeah, well, fuck you then, you know? <laughs> but no, I, but I haven't had anybody really come. The, the only thing I ever get is people telling me that I'm not old enough to know what I'm talking about. And that's only because I look young because I'm, you know, I'm 45 and I've been, you know, I was born in the late seventies and I've been listening to music since the mid eighties. So I'm just like, well, I feel like I come at it with qualifications, you know, not as most, not as much as some people do, but you know, I've been a fan and a f- fanatical about researching and knowing everything I can about all the music I love on top of being a musician and a songwriter and having all of that experience. And so I feel like I don't ever want to have to explain myself to people. So usually when people are like, you don't know what you're talking about, I just delete their comment. And I'm like, moving on. I'm moving on. I'm not even going to bother with you because why even say that? You know, it's like, because you don't know anything about me. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's so true. And we're about the same age. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to be 47 this year. All right. And I get the same kind of comments. I actually went to see Skinny Puppy uh, was it last week or week and a half ago, something like that. And this guy, he was really nice. So this is not a knock on him. On one end, I didn't know where he was coming from. I still don't. <laughs> but he said, what is a person like you doing to send a skinny puppy or something like that? And I was like, wait, what are you alluding to here? And then he said something about my age. You don't look old enough. And I'm like, yeah, I'm older than you think. (laughs) (laughs) And that's usually what I tell people. Like, You don't look old enough to like this music. I'm like, music is timeless. It's good. It's timeless. And when we all leave this earth, this music is still going to be around for people who are 12 years old. It's going to be into it. 
So the mm-hmm. idea that you need to be a particular age or identity or whatever to be in the music, that just never made a lot of sense to me. <laughs> it's going to die off once our generations are gone because, you know, my, my daughter is 12 and oh. she she listens you know to music through streaming. The things that she will, I'll find out that she's a fan of, and it's almost seamless where she'll be into uh, like Billie Eilish, but also ACDC. Mm. And there's no, you know, somebody would come to her and be like, well, you weren't there back in the day. And everyone her age is just going to go, so? (laughs) Like, it's not going to matter because now the way that they're getting music, it's almost like timelines don't matter anymore. It's like, is it good or is it not? Because it's all there available. So she she likes darker music and a lot of rock music and stuff. But the stuff that connects with her um, usually just makes me pretty proud, you know, because I've played, I've played her a lot of stuff throughout my life. But now that she's older, I kind of leave it up to her yeah. to, like, you know, get into her music. But she, she still will surprise me and come to me one day and be like, who does that cult of personality song? I love that song. I'm like, fucking A, man, it's living color. But she, but it's just one of those things where she just hears it somewhere and she's like, well, this is good music. I don't know what year this came out. This is just good. There's a beautiful thing about that. But on top of that, I can see why people missed how it was back in the day because it is a little bit less special because you don't have to do as much work for it. But, you know, that right there is why I get so, I think, stressed when I think about stuff because I'm constantly the person that has both sides kind of going back and forth in my head for some things for some things there's one side and fuck the other side but with things like this you know there's so many things where I just think that that's my biggest problem with the internet and a lot of people today is that everyone feels like oh there's just one answer to everything and I'm like well no there's not necessarily one answer um you just have to be open to the fact that some things are going to make your head hurt when you try to think about them. (laughs) And that's just (laughs) how it is, you know? And we also need to accept that we're not always going to be right. That too. Regardless of what it is. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think, I think that I think I've determined that there's a difference between people like me and the people that really annoy me. And that's usually bigots and people of of that nature, that side of things. I won't get into specifics, but I'm the kind of person that I am constantly looking for something to prove me wrong. Whereas those people are constantly looking for things to prove them right. And I'm just like, yeah, that's it. That's literally where the line is right there. Are you open to being proven wrong or are you obsessed with how you feel about things and don't want anything to change that? I'm just like, there you go. It's clear as that. Yeah. And I wanted to talk about those delineations that people create. I think to your point, there's one thing about feeling passionate about particular type of music because Mm -hmm. those lines are no longer delineated because of streaming. And so we don't have the cultural connection that the same types of connections that we had. Mm. But I think, you know, passing on this music to your daughter is one thing. And, you know, we didn't grow up, we have little Richard records, but we didn't grow up when he first came out with Tutti Frutti. But we still have those records. I was what two when ACDC came out with Big Balls. But, you know, that doesn't mean I can't have those records just because. Yeah, yeah. You know, we were toddlers. We were young kids in 1982 when, you know, or 1979 when Rapper's Delight came out. 
should we not have those records because we yeah. weren't old enough? It's yeah. Just, it's interesting to me. And today's actually the day that we're recording. This is actually international jazz day and jazz is my favorite music of all time. And I started thinking about the similarities between metal communities and jazz communities. And there's this need to hold on to a particular type of jazz and a need to hold on to a particular type of metal and treat it precious as if it should be in a museum. And yeah. when you have bands like Polyphia, it's the interesting thing where I saw Chris Dave. Chris Dave is one of my favorite drummers of all time, but he has the Chris Dave, Pino Palladino and Isaiah Sharkey trio. And they did a residency and we went to go see them. And I met a dude in a Metallica shirt there. Music is not so precious where I can only compartmentalize it here and only listen to this type of jazz. I can only listen to Miles Davis before he did Bitches Brew. I can only listen to this era of Herbie Hancock before he went electric. It just doesn't make sense to me. And so people saying, yeah. I can only listen to Bonded by Blood. I can yeah, I only listen to that. That's yeah. it. It's it. It's like I love what bands like Polyphia are doing because they are meshing hip hop. They're meshing jazz and rock. And, you know, there's particular forms of rock that I'm not necessarily into, like Insane Clown Posse. But at the same time, there are countless people who do connect with that. So yeah. why should I knock that? There are I mean, people into all these bands that I may not be into, but it gives people joy. And going back to the Sandman thing, who am I to judge people who connect with that? I just think that you and I are just more we're thoughtful people. And so it, more thought goes into the things that we do and say than a lot of people. People work in different ways. But I think in the metal community, for sure, I don't know if this is the same with i'm not into jazz so i don't know a whole lot about it but in the metal community i think the problem is everyone needs to learn what actually is important when it comes to holding music sacred or holding music as precious because i'm all about a thing that's already there holding that precious so ride the lightning that's a precious album to me if metallica came out and said oh we're just gonna totally remix and redo this album i'd be like uh please don't fuck with that yeah. but and but that's just an album the problem is people are assigning that level of i don't know um, obsession with a band name or a genre name which is like that's what's ridiculous there because then it's like it's going even further and further out i'm like oh just because a band has a particular name they're human beings like why do they have to make the same music over and over again if a band does a album that's thrash metal and they want to do something progressive why is that such a bad thing it's because people are focusing on the wrong things you know it's, it's interesting that interesting that you brought up bonded by blood because i have always been for many years under the assumption that paul bailoff was a not a good person mm -hmm. and people like hold him up like he's this hero and i'm like Every single story you hear about him is him trying to beat somebody up for what they were wearing. Right. Right. <laughs> I'm like, fuck that guy. I'm sure he was nicer in other areas of his life. But, you know, even when I was young, like he can't chalk that up to being young. Even when I was young, I was like, why would I want to fight somebody because they're into music I don't like or they're dressed a way that I don't like? Mm -hmm. So holding somebody up as a hero, it's like misplaced appreciation or love or whatever for just the things that actually don't matter 
And then the things that do matter, I feel just get overlooked sometimes. That's why I just, I don't know. I just really do think that it's more, the things that are precious to me are individual things and they're already are there, already exist in a certain form. I don't like remastered albums. I just want them to sound the way that they sounded. And and if they want to put out an, an album of B-sides or, or remixes, great. I might buy it or I might not buy it. But those are the things that are precious to me. But I, I really do, especially in metal, it's been it's way too much of an emphasis on what genre is that and is it actually metal or not. And I'm like, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. Like, why are you wasting your time with this? Like, and it, it all boils down to, this might not be a very a very popular opinion, but I feel like some people have not had enough bad stuff happen to them in their life. <laughs> because I, I feel like there's a level of comfort and pampering that you had to have had in order to think that those things are important for you to shittle over somebody's opinion or what somebody loves. I think those of us that have been through some shit, it's a little bit easier to be like, this is not worth it. <laughs> you know, and I don't want to wish anything bad to happen to anybody, but there are some people that I'll read a comment on Facebook or on YouTube and I'll just go, man, you really need somebody to kick your ass <laughs> because you have not had enough bad things happen to you. Oh, man. I wanted to talk about that a little bit, but sure. I wanted to get into Lulu and St. Anger. And yeah. maybe even through the never, because I'm okay. just finding out you love this movie. But one of the you, I love everything that Metallica has ever done. So you name it. I, I love it in some even though I'll go co- I'll go on record saying reloads my least favorite Metallica yeah. album. I, I love it over most other music. So there you go. I, when I saw that, I said, wait, I was reload 10. Wait a minute. But I totally understand. <laughs> totally understand. Because some people, Kill em All is the last for me, but it's for reasons I mentioned. But some people are like, what do you mean? Kill em All is great. And yeah. someone actually said to me, wait, I thought you were a punk kid. How is Kill em All last? I'm like, because lyrics are first for me. And yeah. I just can't particularly relate to no life till leather gonna kick some ass tonight i just can't <laughs> yeah li- lyrically speaking there's not a lot going on at least they they managed to improve the lyrics to mechanics <laughs> i was gonna say that like man they if they were still doing mechanics i don't know if i'd like metallica i'm just, <laughs> just what yeah. is that yeah. oh man but the thing that i saw and i can't remember who said this but to me, it's so accurate. They said to understand Lars Ulrich's style, you have to be an appreciator of jazz. I don't think you need to like jazz to like Lars, but I think you have to understand that he came from that. His father was a person who listened to jazz, had jazz all around him, was a writer. So I think some of that did seep off into his style. So mm-hmm. when people are talking about the timing or just whatever, I think some of that has rubbed off on him. And I appreciate that as a person who loves jazz, but yeah. getting to your point about holding something so precious or saying that he should play it live exactly like the album, he is a living being human. And to expect him to be a robot or to even expect James Hetfield to be a robot. I know yeah. people are like, he's the riff God. He also he's a, makes mistakes. He's, not he's also almost 60. <laughs> right. So he's going to alternate pick a couple of times. It's yeah. okay. You know? Yeah. I really think with Lars, 
there's a weird way that I've that I've I look at him that I don't know if it makes a lot of sense, but I look at it as Lars is stamina over style because he never lets up. He has so much energy and he's not a perfect drummer. But the thing that I think I love about him, and this might go into like me being like a Kurt Cobain fan as well, is I've always looked at Lars as kind of a a motivational thing for anyone wanting to get into music. It's like, look, Lars was a person who grew up surrounded by music. He wanted so badly to play drums and start his own band. He probably became very aware very quickly that he wasn't that great at it, but he was so driven and had so much stamina that he built this band and he's in a legendary fucking band while still not being that great of a drummer. He's fine for for what they do, and I have no problem with him whatsoever. Some shit he does here and there is actually pretty cool. But if you look at it that way and you go, well, why shouldn't somebody who isn't Neil Peart be able to be in a legendary metal band? Mm -hmm. So it's almost like inspiring to be like, yeah, we should be holding Lars up and be like, you know, we we appreciate that you're not that great, but you made it, buddy, (laughs) you know? I think Saint Anger has some of his best drumming on it. I don't care what anybody says. It's it's great, and I and I uh, the, that was one of the things when I first heard. I, I guess it would have been what was the first actual because they played Frantic live, but then I think it was the song Saint Anger was the first one when I saw the video, mm. and I just remember thinking to myself, "Oh man, that they almost went with like an industrial sound for that snare. That's kind of cool. That was the one thing that I thought was kind of interesting about." <laughs> the song and now it's the thing that everybody hates and i'm like well not really it's just an entry i mean there are plenty of bands especially like in like the hardcore scene that already use that drum sound mm-hmm. and so i'm just like it was just a different choice and it goes with the music so well that's the thing that nobody really ever mentions is the fact that lyrical content style of music the aggressiveness of it all what kind of drums did you want <laughs> it's like they're in your face and chaotic sounding and and they sound like tension they sound like anxiety and there's like so much of that in the lyrics and so it's yeah i, I love it yes i uh you should probably make a whole episode on saint anger even though i'm in a six-hour movie but i absolutely <laughs> love this album for so many reasons and the thing for me with lars especially after coming to play the drums again Mm -hmm. I haven't it was a 20 year span or so before I started playing drums again and it wasn't until I I was an amputee and the first Metallica song that I ever learned to play was when I became an amputee and that was blackened oh shit with with the double kick and everything so I can't do a double kick because I have one leg but well I didn't I didn't know if you didn't I didn't know if you had a prosthetic or something yeah that's true you did (laughs) But even with the time signatures, which are not 4-4, just getting that is not easy. And so I challenged myself and played it every day for months until it just felt okay for me. And for people to say Lars is not good. Yes, I know Justice was also kind of a copy and paste album. We all know that at this point. But they still had to play that live. And I know they left out after a while they left out the middle part but still there was a point where they did play that yeah if you know anything about Lars you know that he attempted to play all those songs all the way through in the studio there was I'm I'm pretty sure there were only overdubs and editing used 
once he realized that, oh, I can have the perfect take of this song if I just edit these few takes together, right. which is what everybody does most of the time anyway. <laughs> but um, but you're right. The Blackened is still one that's kind of a mindfuck for me trying to get my head around it because I, I feel like the riff starts at the top of the beat and then switches to the bottom of the beat. It's yes. really weird. And I, I, I love that about some of their, I guess it's a lot of their earlier stuff. There's just random songs where I go, wait, how does that, what's, what is happening with the drums and the guitar there? <laughs> like battery switches around, uh, Dyer's yeah. Eve switches around, Blacken yeah. switches around. And there are some things in St. Anger that switch around. So, to call Lars a lazy drummer, to call, yes, he acknowledges that I didn't practice that much, uh, but that doesn't mean that he's bad in the sense that people are talking about. And I think oh, no. that people have expectations of him similar to the expectations they have of Dave Lombardo. These are two different people. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's all, it's all, it's also goes to what I said earlier, how it's just become part of the things you're supposed to say. Yeah. You're, so people will hate on Lars knowing nothing about him. People will say things like, remember remember that Napster thing? And I'm like, if you did a little bit of Googling, you'd realize that like everybody agrees with him now. <laughs> like you're, you're the one that looks dumb because you're still bringing up Napster 20 years later or whatever. It's a whole lot of just parroting and groupthink mentality. And it's just, you know, and at the end of the day, who cares? Like, it's like, he's the drummer of Metallica. Do you not like it? Well, then go listen to some other band. Like, it right. just, your two cents is not necessary because we all know how he plays and we're still fans. It's not like we don't know what it sounds like. You know, it's <laughs> like, I mean, there's been there's been shows that I've seen where I go, oh, shit, man, Lars is all over the place at this fucking show. <laughs> but um, it doesn't matter. The energy is still there and it's still fun. And if you're there in the at the show and, and you know, fe feeling it at the time, you don't even notice that shit. So exactly. And there was the point which is interesting to me because the early days of that band, he was just behind the drum set. You didn't see any spotlight on him. He was just there covered, enveloped in drums. And then there was yeah. the point after Justice where he after every song comes out of the drums, it's like, yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. And he became Lars. It's yeah. so interesting to see that transformation. And I've heard people that they get annoyed at him on stage, but I'm like, I love it. I love how a song ends and I know he's going to stand up. And, and if we're seeing it in like in an arena, he's probably going to run to another part of the stage. But that's what I mean about like stamina. He could easily just sit there and take like a two minute break while James talks for a minute, but he doesn't. He gets up and he runs and he does something else, you know, dude is really like a testament to like, you know, if you have the drive and the ambition, like, man, you can you can really kick some fucking ass, you know. And if you listen to a song like Mistress Dread, I know most people are like, what song is that? Lulu. OK, Lulu. Yeah, I don't I think that was one take because Lou Reed was like, we're not doing any redubs or anything. So I think all that stuff was one take. So to listen to Lars playing Mistress Dread. Yeah. Come on. Like, y'all are telling me Lars is bad? That song is what, like five, six minutes? Yeah. <laughs> and that's just Lars going at it. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. That that makes me feel tired listening to that song. I know. Um, but yeah, I just, yeah. Once again, I just think that it's, you know, comparing comparing him to other people is just unnecessary and and really not really fair because he's yeah. he is he is Lars I mean the, I've said plenty of times if there's no Lars there's no Metallica like that's just how it he was the person that started putting the band together he's the person that 
you know, when they were going through their worst shit, he was the one still being like, no, we got to keep this shit going and trying to keep everybody motivated. Like he's, he's the heart of that band, you know, what, whether or not you like his drumming or not, like the, the band wouldn't exist without him. So. And I think with some kind of monster, I appreciated they were showing all sides of the band. So Lars was definitely not seen as an angel in that movie. And I appreciated that. Like the part of the museum, yeah. it's like he was insufferable. And to yeah. see James, it's just, they were people you didn't necessarily want to be around, but it was a survival story of sorts and just discussing people's healing process. And it's yeah. not something you necessarily see. And I do think what James said in terms of that movie being a mirror, not just to themselves, but to the person watching the movie. I know you're saying there are people who haven't struggled and that's true, but I think there are so many of us who have struggled either through childhood trauma or mm -hmm. abuse or adult trauma and abuse, et cetera, who watch that movie. And even people who are struggling in bands that understand and the movie resonates with them. Yeah. And I appreciate that the only person really coming out of that movie <laughs> was just like okay was rob and you know because he came in I, later but what about what, what about kirk well kirk, kirk oh, is okay well kirk, kirk is the best part of the whole movie for me i love <laughs> i am a kirk fanboy but even yeah. like he made some comments towards jason in the movie too which people don't really talk about like he made some snide comments in that movie too <laughs> yeah <laughs> so but uh, but but i mean as as lars so eloquently put it he left the fucking band you I, know i i know that scene by heart i <laughs> Oh my goodness. But I just I, love there, there's there's a couple of moments with Kirk that just are the best ones ever. And it's especially that part where J James is all like, you know, like, you know, I leave and then all of these decisions are being made without me. And Kirk's like, well, it's like the last 20 years for me. Yeah. And then they're like, hey, let's talk about this tomorrow. It's like, no, let's talk about yeah. this now. But I uh, I love that movie. I saw that movie in the theater. Like they they brought so. they brought it out. And I, I just remember it being so weird sitting in a theater. I'm like, wait, why is the picture square? They, did they film this for TV? <laughs> but it was a uh, but it but and that but that was a, that was around the time that I would not have called myself a Metallica fan. Like I went through several years where I didn't buy their albums. Yep. But I was still interested enough that I'm like I'm gonna go see this movie in the yep. theater. That quickly, you know, Death Magnetic is what brought me back to the band like big time. And then once that brought me back, I gave St. Anger its due and I really listened to it. And I go, no, this is actually really good. So, you know, but so I've been on both sides of it. I, I haven't been a Metallica hater, but I've definitely gone through a point in my life where I was like, I'm not, I'll catch up with them later. Maybe they do something I'm more interested in. And it just so happened that they did, so. That point for me was I actually stopped listening to them for a while because of the James torture comments. So where torture comments. Yeah. So he was interviewed and James is, you know, like America kind of guy. And so he was asked about, you know, Enter Sandman being used to torture prisoners. Yeah. And the thing with James, it, he clearly gets uncomfortable with conversation around those type of things. But he was asked and he worded it in a way that sounded like he was defending it. Oh. He's just like, well, you know, we torture our wives and our kids with that. So why can't other, you know, that kind of thing. It's like, no, James, no. It, it, it's, no. it sounds like that also could be he has a dark sense of humor at times. Right. right. So I don't I that's the thing is that I've never heard him come out and say anything definitively about 
I mean, obviously he likes hunting and stuff like that. Yeah, and he likes, yeah. you know, Southern rock and right. both things that I don't like at all, but I've never, he's never come out and said anything that made me think that he was a you know super right winger and even some of his lyrics and I'm, and even now on 72 seasons, there are some lyrics in there that I go, a right winger wouldn't really write these words. Yes. Um, I, I feel like that he, he may be, you know, a more, a more of a liberal. And I know for sure that Lars and Kirk are, yes. they're, they're yes. super liberals. For sure. Um, but I feel like if James was, you know, a bit more conservative and he was younger, I think that he's grown from that. Absolutely. And, um, Absolutely. and that and I'll tell you why I agree with you. So when they had in the earlier issues of, so what, when they mm -hmm. were printing them, yeah. He said some massively anti-trans stuff in there. They printed all of that stuff. Oh, really? And yeah, yeah. And, you know, the song Don't Tread on Me is the one original Metallica song I do not like. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't like that. That that one's the weak one off of Black Album Yeah, for it's me. the one Metallica song, original. Like, there's a couple of covers. I'm like, no, but original song. I love every other Metallica song except for that one. And then... There were some over the years in the earlier years, there were some things he said that were racist and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so it made sense to me. And he, cause he's again, like America, he also said, well, Metallica stands for freedom and all that. And so just how he worded it, I struggled with that. And so I, people knew that I loved Metallica. So, so many of my friends, cause I'm also a punk kid. So many of my friends who are like in, in like anarchist communities that thought you love Metallica. <laughs> How can you, you know? And I was like, well, I struggled with that a lot. Yeah. And so I said, yeah, I can't really sit with something being vehemently against what I believe in. So I had to stop listening to them. And then they came out and publicly said, yeah, we want y'all to stop using our music. And that's when I became okay with listening to them again. I think to your other point, there was an interview, I think also related to So What, where James was asked, I don't know why he was asked, but they said something about, what do you think about gay people or something? I'm like, that's kind of a weird question. And he mm -hmm. just said, you know, whatever makes people happy. And I said, James has really, whatever therapy mm -hmm. he was getting... Well, I, I also feel like that I think this is something that's probably very unique to like us and our, our generation, maybe the last one, um, the, the, gen, the Gen Xers, mm -hmm. where I've had to struggle a lot as I've gotten older with the things that I love, especially when it comes to music. The people that I truly don't like in the music community who I, if I had stuff by them, I would have gotten rid of it, but I don't. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that double down. So if you come out and say, you know, I don't understand trans people. And then somebody comes to you and says, a lot of people, don't, you know, were hurt by the words you said, what would you like to say to that? If they come back and say, oh, no, that wasn't my intention at all. And here's how I really feel. Then that I then I'll give them some space to grow. But it's the ones, it's the Ted Nugents of the world that are just like, that's right. I said, fuck those trans people. Those are the ones where I'm like, all right, you've been given an opportunity and you did not take it. Right. Therefore, you are now persona non grata in my eyes. Because I really do think that people deserve a chance to grow and yeah. to become better. And obviously there's degrees to that. 
So if you're like Bill Cosby, it, I, I don't care. I don't care if he's a better person. He did enough bad shit that he, that negates everything. Right. right. But I don't know to, to the same extent. Like you think like Louis C.K. the comedian. He did stuff, and I go, well, that's really inappropriate. But has he grown from that, and will he do that again? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I don't necessarily like him as a comic, but that's a different degree of shit right there. Where I go, that's horrible on a certain level. If if you're a a good enough person that you'll take that and grow with it, then I'm fine with it. And I feel like that's kind of James because James has never done anything that I go, oh, that's awful. But there has been, you're right, there have been a few things here and there where I go, why did he have to say that? But then I have to think about it. Well, this was in the 80s and people talked like that. And now if he was asked about it, he would probably say, yeah, that was unfortunate. I shouldn't have said that. That's what makes him a good person because everybody's fucked up at some point. I got... I'll, I'll I'll tell I'll tell this to you. I I was given in school suspension in the fourth grade for reciting a racist limerick, and I didn't understand the impact of it. It was just a thing that I had heard from some other kids, and they seemed to think it was funny. So I said it to somebody else. Somebody else overheard it. I got sent to the office and I got in school suspension for doing it. But immediately I started thinking about what it was that I said. And I go, yeah, you're right. Fuck that. And it's like, you know, it's so like, you know, like everybody has made some kind of mistake, maybe not necessarily that kind of mistake, but I just feel like, you know, you grow from that. That's what makes you a good person is like, are you able to grow from the mistakes that you make? I really do think that James has, has, become kind of a softy on a lot of stuff oh it seems like it anyway oh i love it for me i have to see actions i think this idea that an apology will suffice when there hasn't been any clear redemptive actions the person who has been harmed does not have to forgive the one who apologized sure yeah and this idea where we're expected to do that i talked on our last episode around you know metal and this idea that there's a lot of folks who talk about, oh, we're a family, but outside of that concert, I could potentially be harmed by that person. Yeah. And so we have to understand not everyone who is part of that quote unquote family <laughs> has the same intentions as what you're saying. And so we really need to have accountability processes that are humane mm-hmm. and with in terms of James, in terms of all of that, I think just seeing the actions through all within my hands, seeing his transformation, I'm okay with that. And I absolutely respect and appreciate James. And I love seeing Papa Head. I love this era of James Hetfield. Yeah. And I love that you transitioned into this because I really wanted to talk about this. There's some things on Lulu. I love Lulu, but there mm-hmm. are some things in terms of lyrical content in that album where I'm like, no. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, have a, I have a feeling I know one part you're talking yes, about. you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I've seen Lars defend it, and he's like, well, if you're a 13-year-old, I'm like, no. Some of the stuff in Lou Reed's catalog are not defensible, and yeah. I do not agree with that. To call it art, there's lots of art that you don't have to defend. The thing with that, I think the context of the whole album is what I love about it. But there are particular parts. It's like, 
no. <laughs> you know, people calling it art and then saying, well, you just don't understand. And I'm a person who loves Lulu and I'm still saying this is problematic. So you can't tell me I don't understand and I'm not learning whatever they're saying. Yeah. It, it, that doesn't make sense to me. No, it's yeah. not defendable. I, I, it's an interesting thing because sometimes that this is what I'm trying to say. Like I fight in my head with stuff because I do have simultaneous feelings of, oh, I, that's awful. I never would have written something like that. And at the yeah. same time saying, is that language appropriate to get across the emotion he's trying to get across? Like, was it intended to cause that kind of, you know, because sometimes things are done in a way that it's supposed to spark something in you and whether or not that's done with malice or done, you know, in some sort of a, a positive experience, you know, you recognizing that, Oh, that's harsh. It's making me understand that it's harsh. I don't, I don't know. It's because I don't know. I didn't talk to Lou Reed, so I have no fucking clue, but I do go back and forth in my head with, with lyrics in a lot of different places in music where I go, was that necessary to say that there? <laughs> well, there's, I think, two perfect examples in terms of intent. A song like Los Angeles by X. Uh-huh. And then a song like Hate the Police by The Dicks. Those are two examples where the intent is to look at someone who holds racist ideologies. It's not coming from the perspective of the songwriter. So those yeah. are two examples. Re- a really good example is Keep It In The Family by Anthrax. Yes. Absolutely. They, the intent, they like they use a couple slurs in that song and it never hit me as inappropriate. It was like, well, I, I totally get what they're saying. Because sometimes, right. sometimes you have to say the words. Now, whether or not I would have written that song, I wouldn't have. Yeah. Because I, I, it's not my place to say those words. <laughs> so. Right. And then some people would say, well, well, we have to say it. And why can't, why do these people get to say it? And it's like uh, getting to the point of, you know, what is and is not acceptable in art. Yeah. The thing about art is that if it's good, it's going to question the status quo. But what we're seeing is people's defense of art uh, where they don't want to be held accountable. Like yeah. you're literally echoing the sentiments of the status quo. <laughs> Kid Rock, for instance, and his anti-transness and shooting at beer cans or whatever, then I want to ask you, because I know that you do like Pantera, I do want to ask you about Phil and Selmo, because yeah. I actually have seen, I've seen Pantera live about two or three times, and this is mm-hmm. before he went off and did all of it. And so I was really into Pantera and then I didn't even know that Dimebag Daryl was using racial. I didn't know any of that when I was coming 15 years old seeing Pantera. Yeah. And so seeing that and then the Confederate flag element and all of this. And it's not just the Dime Bash in 2016 where Phil Anselmo is being white supremacist. There are various examples of that. And so people are rationalizing his behavior by this one event when there's various examples on video where he's doing this. He's wearing a t-shirt on an MTV video, which has a Triscallion, which is the neo-Nazi group in South Africa. So I I didn't know that. So yeah. yeah. So it's a, a, I think it is a carnivore shirt, but it had the Triscallion. So there are clear examples And why are people defending Phil and Simo? And so I know they are opening for Metallica. I'm actually not going to be sitting there watching them 
for them. Yeah. And people are like, well, it's Pantera. It's, you know, memories or whatever. And I feel like there's a point where, and, and this is not an attack on people who are going to see Pantera. I'm just saying there's a point where you have to take a position. Yeah. I don't know enough about the different things that Phil did besides that. There's only two instances that I've personally seen that bothered me. And one of them was Dime Bash. And the other one was this clip of him in the early 90s where he's like, I'm sick of this. It's a black thing stuff. And those things really bugged me because like, I don't understand why it's so hard to understand certain things for some people. It's really hard for me to wrap my head around not being able to grasp simple concepts. I was in the sixth grade when the Rodney King LA riots happened. And I went to a predominantly black and Hispanic school and I listened to a lot of black music, but some of my favorite movies are movies from that time period, juice house party. Mm -hmm. Um, they're all like some of my favorite things I was, and I didn't see it as I didn't really care about the division between, oh, this is a black artist or this is a white artist, but I did understand that other people did make those divisions. Mm -hmm. And so I remember seeing watching on the news the night before i had to go to school the la riots and watching all the things that were happening and at no point during that as a young person i was 12 years old or whatever at no point did i say those people are wrong for how they're feeling even as a young person i said i kind of understand all of these things you're supposedly getting some kind of justice but over and over again you're being proven wrong that you really don't have that kind of justice or that kind of equality and so i remember going to school the next day being like you know and i had and i was picked on i i had racism towards me that year because i was a white person and and i always thought to myself i get it you know i i absolutely understand it and so they were in the wrong for saying those things to me because they did say a lot of shit to me but at the same time i went you're it's an there's emotion there there's history there there's things that i will never understand there so i understand that so the fact that as a 12 year old i was able to process it that way you move forward several years and and you get to like black lives matter and stuff like that like i don't understand why people don't understand what that means it doesn't Mm -hmm. it blows my mind i try to assign that to somebody like phil and selmo when i go well if it is true that when he was doing the Nazi salute thing that he was it was tongue in cheek and he was just being edgy and trying to be funny, I go, well, if that even if that is the case, maybe you should like get a better sense of humor. <laughs> it's yeah. like maybe you need to like understand like how what you're doing will affect other people. And maybe, maybe if this is a joke between you and one and two people, don't do it in front of crowd of a crowd of hundreds, hundreds of people. Mm-hmm. So all of those things always just baffle me. Like the things, there's a picture that, I, that I've that i seen where it's James Hetfield and he's standing next to- To Lars and they're doing the, the in the, yep. Well, yeah, the I, they, I, knew, I knew that, I know that they were, that they were parroting, parroting yeah. Hitler, but yeah. this is another picture actually. Oh. It's James, James standing next to Carrie King from Slayer. Yes. And Carrie King is wearing a shirt that has the the Confederate flag. Yes, it's like you're it, you have your ex and I have mine. That one. And I yeah, and I think to myself, oh my God, who would make that shirt first off? 
who would who would purchase that shirt and who would wear it because i'm just like do you not get how childish and uneducated and i mean downright racist but everything about that i'm just like that alone tells me everything i need to know about carrie king i'm just like so you're mad that people are celebrating malcolm x why I mean, it's like, I, why, why does that, why does it, what does that do to your life? What has it done to you? Yeah, so I have my issues with it. But with Phil, I saw the interview he did after everything. And once again, I want to give him the opportunity to become a better person. Mm-hmm. And if it took him to, until his 50s for that to happen, are we supposed to say that's wrong? So like my, so I, I literally kind of, it's almost like a, I'm cautious with Pantera now because I never personally saw any of the things back in the day. I knew that Dimebag had the Confederate flag on his guitar, but for a lot of us, when we were growing up, the Confederate flag was not called the Confederate flag. We were not taught that in school. We did not really know much about that. It was called the rebel flag and, and it was supposed to mean you know, going against the grain. And there was no, I was not brought up knowing what it meant. I'm pretty sure when I was a kid, I had a hat with the Confederate flag on it from like a vacation I went on with my parents. So there's that part of me that everything I know about Dimebag, I don't think that he was a racist and I don't think he used the Confederate flag in that way. And if he were alive today, I almost feel like he would probably be like, oh, I'm not using that anymore. Cause I feel like that's the dude that he was. Phil, on the other hand, <laughs> I don't know. I want him. I want. I want him to grow. I. I don't really care about seeing Pantera, except for the fact that I love Charlie Benante. But I don't want to hear Phil sing those songs anymore because he can't sing those songs anymore. That has nothing to do with any personal preferences to his way of life or whatever. But yeah, I'm just very cautious with Pantera now, where I. Pantera has become one of those bands now where if somebody comes to me and says, you know, I love Pantera and I'll, I'll be like, oh, cool, me too. And then there's that moment where I go, but which kind of Pantera fan are you? Mm, yeah. <laughs> like, are you going to be over here with me or is this going to be or are we going to have some words with each other? They've just become that band where I think that there are people that got into them and there was no bullshit piled on top of it and in fact in fact my introduction to pantera the first full album i heard was vulgar display of power and in the lyrics he's talking about there not being any division between people but that's the thing where people say those things but that contradicts their actions so do you think though that deep down every time he's done something questionable do you think that deep down maybe he knows he's wrong and he's just some people are just born stupid. <laughs> I think people go, well, he was drunk. And like, there's a whole bunch of drunk people and they don't say that. So yeah, I, yeah. I've never, that's why I've they never call it legal courage. <laughs> yeah. And so it's, it's this idea. I think that I think ultimately that's who he really is. I really do think he's racist. I know people, I don't think he is, but him before even he was going white power, like you mentioned when he was just like, I'm tired of the black thing. He said, and this is on tape, Pantera's rock, white music. So yeah. I really think that's where he stands. And so yeah. I, I think because he's being held accountable, he's like, uh, uh, uh. but he's been pretty consistent about where he stood for years. So and and also, 
And also he has nobody backing him up. I haven't heard people back up Phil Anselmo. When it comes to like Dimebag, the one that comes to mind is Doug Pinnock from King's X. Yes. He's talked he's talked about how great Dimebag was and how good they were and how good of a friend he was. Right. And but nobody I haven't heard anybody come out <laughs> and say, you know, there you know Vernon Reed hasn't come out and said Phil's good. Oh man. <laughs> you know, speaking no. speaking of Vernon Reed, I wanted to actually talk about a quote from Corey Glover and this is in relation to Guns N' Roses doing One in a Million, which of yeah. course slash was like, oh, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> but Corey yeah. Glover said, because they played with Guns N' Roses, if I'm not mistaken, and he said, what scared us the most was when Axel said these things, uh, the lyrics of One in a Million, the yeah. audience roared. No matter what he said, the audience roared. That yeah. is what we were trying to say um, in an interview. Uh, they were talking about this. This is yeah. the kind of control you have over people and things you say affect people. And yeah. to say these things uninformed and to have people take it as gospel is scary. And I think that's the thing people need to understand when people go, it's just words. Understand that words also have consequences, not just actions, but words. So when Phil and someone is up there doing that, best believe there are people who agree with him and will yeah. go and enact violence on people yeah. outside of that venue. So you need to take responsibility for your words as well as your actions. And I yeah. don't think as, as I haven't seen it, I'm not yeah. saying it's true, but I have not I seen either. Phil and Simo take actions yeah yeah so i so yeah he he needs to he needs to take a minute out of every show to say something i feel like that's the yeah, only something. way that's a that brings us such an interesting point though because you're talking about one in a million by guns and roses and that that is one of those weird push and pulls in my brain because the song is not axel talking about anything it's from the point of view of somebody who is a bad person saying awful things. If you look at the lyrics, it's from this hick that comes to town and he just sees these people that he doesn't like. And it's the whole song about that. And the, the chorus of the song is basically saying, look, you're just one person. You're like, you make no difference whatsoever. Why does it matter to you? You know, kind of thing. I remember when all of this was going on and when they were interviewed, they would say, yeah, it kind of is about Axel. He was just kind of a wet behind the ears dude just coming into a big city. So yeah. I don't know if it's not about him or what, but they were it's, saying it was relative to Axel's experience. It's kind, it's kind of like projecting yourself into the worst possible version of yourself, really. But that doesn't matter because it has to do with how it's perceived. So here's the next conundrum. As a songwriter, if you do write something like that, are you responsible to take into account that a large part of your audience is not very smart and they won't understand that that's what you mean? Because I think that's the biggest problem. That's why you have fucking people being like, why does Raging Against the Machine have to be all political? Oh and I'm God. like, because people don't pay attention to what songs are actually about. So you're right. So Axel should have known. Maybe if, even if I want to put this song on an album and I feel like I want to say it this way, maybe don't do it live where you're going to get this crowd reaction because that is that adds a whole other level on top of it that isn't intentional or I or I think wasn't intentional. It's that thing of like, I don't really have any problem with that song because I've always looked at it as a, as from the point of view of an awful person, but maybe that's just me. I don't know. But I also understand the effects that it has on somebody else. And so that's when as a songwriter, I just I, I feel like I would never write something like that and I definitely wouldn't sing it in a cr crowd of 50,000 people. 
So yeah, so it's it's very it's very weird to, to when you, when it comes to that kind of thing because there is a truth to you should be allowed to say whatever you want, but you should also expect to get your ass whooped. <laughs> Consequences. Well, the funny thing. So my favorite example of this is Sebastian Bach. So mm-hmm. do you remember? I remember when this went down as well, very clearly. When there was a kid who threw up a shirt on stage. And he put it on and it had an extremely homophobic comment wishing yeah. death on people. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And so, he even he he did a photo shoot in that, yes, that shirt too. And it pointed pointed to the shirt and everything. I remember yeah. this. Yeah. And so people are like, yo, what's up with that? And so he did some press conference or something, and I think he used the wrong words. Maybe he did. He's like, I don't understand. I don't condone gay people. I'm like, what? Shut up. <laughs> I don't condone. I don't understand gay people, but but uh, no one deserves to die. So yeah. clearly, even though he's trying to, quote, apologize, he's still saying maybe he used the words he didn't understand and was like, I'm trying to use five cent words. I don't know. But he's yeah, still yeah. clearly saying he doesn't like gay people by saying he doesn't condone it. And who are you to condone or not condone people's experience and lives? Like, well, anyway, yeah. he did another interview with Kurt Loder because Kurt Loder was not only was he one of the folks to massively give support to Living Color, which you mentioned, mm-hmm. but he also was one of the people who came out hard against Sebastian Bach. And so he did an interview with Kurt Loder after this. And he said, I remember this interview. He said, yeah, there was a 13-year-old kid who came up to me and said, yeah, I hate your know, gay slur too. And he was like, oh, yeah, uh, let me not wear that shirt. So that's the thing, understanding that there are consequences to your action. And that was the light bulb from him. And there were actually lyrics that he changed in later years to mm-hmm. be less anti-queer. I think that is a perfect example of someone who has done something redemptive and understood their actions had consequences. Yeah. Yep. So Sebastian Bach is an example. And the other thing I've been thinking about was a lot of people say they love George Carlin. A lot of people say they love Richard Pryor. They love mm-hmm. Lenny Bruce. They love Dick Gregory, all of these comedians. But there yeah. was an interview that Larry King did with George Carlin. And George Carlin was asked what type of comedy he would not do. And he says, well, nothing's off the I believe in free speech Except I'm not going to do anything that targets marginalized people. He didn't use those words, but he essentially said he's not going to do comedy that punches down. Mm-hmm. And the people who say they're inspired by him have not taken that to heart. Oh, and yeah. They're doing the things that are punching down. They're doing the status quo. And then they're complaining that they're being canceled when they're making millions selling out stadiums. I'm like, how are you being canceled? Yeah. I don't understand this. <laughs> Yeah, the well, it, it, since we're on the subject of stand-up comedy, I've never been a really huge stand-up comedy fan, but I do. There are some people that I've enjoyed over the years, but something that I think is kind of unfortunate that's happened with stand-up comedy is that it's become almost where the jokes aren't quite as important as some sort of statement that the comedian is trying to make. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm talking about like I love Dave Chappelle, but he's sometimes like the way that he's worded stuff, I go. All right, I get where you're coming from, but why do it here? Like, why do it during your stand-up comedy set? <laughs> he did that thing when he he made some good points about how frustrating it would be being a black person and having to struggle for so many years 
And then all of a sudden there's, you know, there's another group and they're claiming that, you know, that they're, that, that the, the, I don't, I don't know how he worded it, but it was talking about that conundrum of like, who's really put in the, the time here for being persecuted, you know, kind of thing. And I'm like, I wouldn't, I would never have said those things in a stand up comedy routine. Cause it's really, it, it, it's a touchy subject. And I'm just like, it's a, it's a re- you, you knew when you were writing this, that this was edgy and maybe it should have been part of an interview you did sometime, but maybe not a stand up comedy show, you know? Yeah. Well, the thing about Dave Chappelle and people like him, his class interests are not the same as ours. So that's yeah. the first thing. Yeah. And the second thing, the thing that Dave Chappelle and a lot of other folks do is they equate gay and trans with being white. So how can you say? Yeah, which is oh, weird. Yeah. So how can you say oh, alphabet mafia and all this? Aren't there uh, people who are not white who are gay and trans? And you're totally yeah. leaving them out. And so he does that. A lot of people have done that. Yeah. So that's what, which, when you, which really, if you want to think about it, they're struggling even more. <laughs> it's exactly. like even harder. Exactly. So, yeah. But he did that. And yeah. it's just like, well, I'm black. And then here's gay and trans people. Will be, I'm like, oh, so you're saying that there are no black gay or trans people. That's exactly yeah. what your skit is about. I see. Yeah. I got you. Okay. So it's, so it's, it's, there's a, there's that level of like, I, I can, I understand what is making him frustrated, but I don't think it's anything that can be solved as a bit in a stand-up comedy routine. Um, right. it, you can't, you're not going to be able to communicate it in a way that's going to actually solve any problems whatsoever because but once again like i remove myself from all of that stuff because like you know i'm not a minority i'm not any sort of lgbt you know you know if there's a pen if there's a pendulum maybe it's it's swung at times but 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 i'm you know i'm as cis white male as as it gets really and not by any choice of my own i would love to to not be this but you know (laughs) in other uh respects if somebody comes to me and says well, you're privileged because of who you are. I would be like, well, I, I'm not going to going to disagree with that because I know how the world works. But right. but at the same time, I have experienced some of that because I've always been like a long haired kid or a kind of a punk kid. So I've you know I've been discriminated against before, but like that's like fucking kindergarten discrimination. It's not. <laughs> that's it's funny because someone actually had that exchange with me, saying, "Well, I choose to think that." we're all equal, but you don't. And what about a Caucasian who has long, I'm like, this is apples and oranges. You're talking about individual situation versus something that's systemic. You have, yeah. Cause no there wasn't, empathy. there was never a, there was never a point where long haired males were enslaved. <laughs> <laughs> you have no type of empathy and cannot leave yourself out of this situation at all. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to be like, well, you don't think that we're equal. I'm like, but the reality is, systemically, we're not. Like, you yeah. have to go to the system. Why are you arguing with me about that? I don't have political or economic control. So you have to go to that. And I think that's the bigger thing is that people focus on these individual celebrities. They focus on uh, these things which we can't control. And even the conversation around, quote, unquote, canceling. Like, yeah. people who do not have political or economic control do not have the ability to cancel anyone. We could talk about McCarthyism all day where people were literally canceled. They had their passports taken away. They lost their houses, their jobs, et cetera. 
based on the beliefs or association with someone who had those beliefs. And yeah. the reason why someone like Kanye West was quote unquote canceled is because he was getting in the way of capital. The reason why Sinead O'Connor got canceled is because she was getting in the way of the Vatican or whatever. Yeah, so yeah. you can't call Dave Chappelle is not canceled. Louis C.K. is not oh, no. canceled. Sarah Silverman is not canceled. And yeah. You need to stop saying it. Phil Anselmo is definitely not canceled. He's going on tour with Metallica. Oh, no, I yeah. He's he'll, he's gonna, he's canceled and cashing those huge paychecks. Exactly. Rob Flynn went and made a video about his experience with Phil Anselmo, and he yeah. got death threats. That should yeah. tell you something, again, about consequence of words. Like All he's doing is being like, hey, we need to really hold each other accountable. And people are saying, you need to die? Yeah. So that just shows you that it's deeper than what you, Phil and Selma's doing. Yeah. Well, you have to, from that, that is why, like, you know, the discussion we're having, I'm never, when, when put in this situation where we're having this kind of discussion, I'm never going to shy away from being candid about how I feel about things. But on my everyday normal videos, I don't talk about these things. Occasionally I do. And it's because even at a low level, like I'm at where, you know, I've got 12,000 subscribers on YouTube and, you know, people on social media following me, even at this low of a level, like recently, like the, after the whole Kid Rock um, Bud Light thing, which really annoyed me. So I posted a picture, I was at a show and I bought a Bud Light and I took a picture of it and it just said, fuck Kid Rock on the picture. And one of one of the people that's in my Facebook group that told me that he was very disappointed in me and I need to change my name to woke head now. And I'm like, if I'm getting that kind of shit and I'm this low level of a person, I understand why getting back onto Metallica, if anyone from Metallica has these bold opinions, that's why they don't say those things they're way the fuck up there. It's just, it was like, so it's like picking your battles or whatever. Right, right. But, yeah. and my, my favorite thing about that is that th this is, I think, I feel like this is something that is a struggle with the, with the um, liberal white person now is that people are throwing the word woke at us. Mm. I always think it's so funny because I always want to remind them, I go, Hey, the only person that thinks that's an insult is you. <laughs> you're literally saying like oh you're a good person <laughs> and i'm like thanks you right. know i don't know i don't know why you're saying it that way but okay <laughs> right oh wow i'm uh willing to hold myself and others accountable and yeah. acknowledge there's a, a system of inequity woke <laughs> and the fact that lead belly was using the word woke he had a song about the scottsboro boys and he said, stay woke. This was what, like 1935? Oh, that's where that is that where that came from? I have no yeah, clue so where, it's, where it started. Woke in the 30s and maybe even before that. And so yeah. this is where it comes from. It's like being a hyper aware of systems of oppression, racism, white supremacy. This is where it comes from. And we were using it. And yeah. now, like uh, other words that have been hijacked or whatever, now people say woke and there was an interview with this guy with a Trump shirt and it was just like, you know, go woke, get broke or whatever. And he's just like, <laughs> it's anti-white. I'm like, cause he was being asked uh, what woke meant. He's like, well, it's anti-white. Hey, you didn't explain what it meant. And yeah. B, you don't know what it means. 
all it means is just being hypersensitive and aware to systems of oppression in short. And this idea that holding someone accountable is canceling, that there are people who have literally been canceled. Uh, the people you're saying are canceled are not being canceled. Yeah. And the thing I've also been thinking about, and I love that you said Nirvana is your second favorite band, bands like Nirvana, Sonic Youth, Rage Against the Machine. This was early 90s, yeah, late 80s, early 90s. If those bands were around today and just getting started, yeah. can you imagine? Oh, can it, you imagine? That's one of the most frustrating things for me is because you know, a lot of people are are nostalgic for another time for many reasons, but one of the big reasons why I'm nostalgic for the early 90s is because the overall, especially by about 92, maybe 93, the overall vibe that I got from mass media that was intended for young people or, you know, everything, MTV or whatever, the overall vibe was we are all going to be better than our parents and the people before us. I really thought if you'd come to me in like 92, 93 and said in 2023, will there still be racism? I'd be like, probably not. Probably just like small pockets of of weirdos, because why would we still be hung up on these things? And so that's it gets so frustrated because I genuinely felt that way when I was a young teenager. I felt like, oh, man, we're moving forward. We now have television programming with homosexuals in it. We now have, we're moving forward with all of these different things. So it's only a matter of time before everyone realizes that it does, none of that shit matters. And so now I look back at it and I go, God damn it. We, we didn't, we didn't do anything. <laughs> we didn't accomplish <laughs> anything. And, and maybe we did because there are a good number of us that still carry the torch for, you know, equality and and everyone being treated like they're the same the same importance of humanity as everybody else i think it's because of the internet it's made that smaller amount of people yeah. a lot louder yeah. and now we're having to deal with that sort of thing like i said where it's like some people are constantly looking for ways to learn and ways to be proven wrong and then other people are just learning looking for things where they're proven right and i just think that that's it's just so frustrating, but I'm glad we have this kind of discussion because it's very hard for me to separate. I, w I don't want to say politics because I don't call it, I don't think it's politics, social issues. I can't remove those from the things that I love. So you know, I've, I've, I've always thought that people that say, well, you need to separate the art from the artist. And I go, that doesn't make you a better person because you can do that. Right. Like you can do that and that's fine for you to do. And in some cases, like I've said, I, if I feel like I understand where something was coming from, or I understand that somebody truly, you know, grew from something that they did, then I'll, I can give them a pass. But in other ways, I'm just like, I can't, I absolutely just can't. I'm fine with that. I don't, I don't want to be a person that's just sort of blind to the kind of people that are making the music that I, I listen to. It's very important. There's a metal band, you may have heard of them from Dallas. Um, power trip they're like a thrash metal band yeah mm -hmm. and i loved that band but i started to love them even more when the, the vocalist who passed away a few years ago he was very active on twitter and he was super liberal and super outspoken 
like he would fight with everybody and i was just like oh man i love this guy i love this band it just makes me love a band even more sacred reich is another example of a band that i absolutely love and their vocalist is very like vocal about how he feels about social issues and political issues and i'm and that actually makes me love them more because i'm like you know what your music fucking rules and i know you're a good dude that's even better Well, to your point about Metallica, I don't think anything's apolitical. Even taking an apolitical position is a political position. Yeah. I understand given how big they are, but it was interesting to see Kirk kind of come out of that fold and be like, Trump, you know, and just the amount of comments he got well, Kirk, you're woke and all of this. And did he? Did, when did he do this? I don't remember this. This is uh, right before Trump got in. And so this was when Trump was running or something. And Kirk's position on it was more environmental than anything. Like, oh, you know, we have to do that. And he lives in Hawaii, which is the most expensive state in the U.S. and ton of pollution and everything. He was really concerned about that. And also, he's made comments. He's just like, we do have fans that are white supremacists. I don't understand. And he's part Asian. So I think he has a, a particular position on that that other band members do not. I have not heard where Rob stands on stuff. He's just like, nope. <laughs> but R- R- Rob just seems like an easygoing guy yeah. overall. And Lars has also uh, taken particular positions. Yeah. So I think that, as you mentioned, I think, uh, Lars and Kirk are the most vocal politically about stuff. And mm-hmm. they have been very openly anti-Trump. <laughs> Taking uh, an apolitical, quote unquote, I'm putting that in air quotes because, again, I'm going to say non-alignment as opposed to apolitical because that's ultimately what it is. Um, So taking a non-alignment stance, I think, in terms of them trying to reach a number of people and knowing that potentially they are going to alienate somebody because that's what you're going to do. If you don't take a position, you're going to alienate people. If you do, you're going to alienate people. So they're just like, we're all family. I get it. I totally get it. I don't particularly agree with how they're going about it, but I get it. Everything's like positive and negative. And the one thing at the four, did you go to the 40th, Joe's? No. So one thing that happened that really made me say, you know what? I totally appreciate this band. So there was a portion where they were, they had videos of folks in the Metallica community and there were trans people there. So, oh, and yeah. so of course it was just like Metallica says trans rights kind of thing. <laughs> and then on the forums, there was somebody who started a thread. It was just like, you know what? I'm a queer Metallica fan. And I just, yeah. you know, when I saw there were folks in front of me, I just felt happy. And so then there were people coming out and saying, you know what? I support you. We're all family. And so that's what people need. The metal community and music at large is not necessarily always supportive of people at the margins. And so you have bands like the big boys, you have bands like the dicks, they have queer members in there. And so it's just like, yeah. And so that's what you gravitate towards or even Jello Biafra and all these people who have come out as being pro-queer or queer themselves or anti-racist, anti-patriarchy, whatever. So when you're seeing these bands, and again, for me, I am a part of a lot of these groups on the margins. So I do need to know where people stand because I don't want to be a recipient of violence, especially as, you know, now I am a physically disabled person. 
I know people are like, well, well, we shouldn't have to know where people stand. I need to know those things as part of several of these marginalized groups. Okay. But yeah. I love that Nirvana on their final album straight up said in the liner notes, and I'm paraphrasing, if you are racist, if you are sexist, if you are homophobic, do not come to our shows and do yeah. not buy our records. That was, and, that was actually on Incesticide. It was yes. a, a, okay. a, 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 okay. a compilation of stuff. Yeah. Okay. I thought it was the final record. I had all of those. Too. <laughs> but <laughs> I do think it's important for bands to take a position on that because yeah. you understand that you're putting out a particular set of words, particular set of lyrics, particular images. Bad Brains is my favorite hardcore band of all time, but there mm -hmm. was a time that they were massively anti-queer and then, you know, they came out and apologized like, yeah, that was, yeah, we were wrong for that. Taking a particular position on something, knowing that you're going to alienate people who come to you because they already feel alienated in the outside world. And then yeah. now to totally take on the position of the status quo, it's just like, I thought metal was for outsiders and now, and even country music, people talk about outsider, but now you have Morgan Wallen, who's number one, who I guess, yeah. you know, it's like preventing Metallica from being number two in the charts. I don't care about that stuff. But the fact is that Morgan Wallen said some racial epithets and he got kicked off as late or whatever. And people actually went and helped get him numbers and streaming because of yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Because of his racism. And that is what we're talking about here. So yeah. this idea like, well, I'm sorry, you know, those are just words. No, you have people out here supporting that. Yeah. Well, like, like I said, all of those Morgan Wallen fans, they are all people that have not had enough bad stuff happen to them. That's why. But I, I do feel for not just Metallica, but, you know, their management or whoever makes the decisions because mm -hmm. it has to be really tough to be like, when do we say something and when do we just need to be quiet? Because there's a there's a level to sometimes I want to know and other times I'm like, you don't need to say anything. It's not important. But other times I wish that bands would. In the in the metal world now, there's this thing that annoys me so much now where all these bands are coming out with these songs that are ambiguous about which side they're supposed to be on it's yeah. like it's like um it's like they all they always have a song about the you know they're lying to you about what's going on in the government they're lying to you in the news but it's all very vague like who are they what are they lying about and i'm like look this is metal you need to take a fucking side if you're gonna write this song right. don't write a song about how like there are bad people in the world hey that's how it works i'm just like no no point it point at those bad people and write that song so I, I that kind of annoys me but when it comes to metallica it, it's that thing or a band that's that big not just metallica any band that big is it a better idea to change people by wel welcoming them first if you are james hetfield is your job supposed to be everybody is welcome and then think to yourself we have all these different kinds of people that's how it should spread because they're now in a, in a situation it shouldn't be me telling you what to do because I'm giving you, I'm giving you the home of everybody is welcome here, and so I, I feel like he's kind of classy in that way because I just think that there are some people that that yeah, some some you know punch a Nazi and all that kind of shit. There are some people that deserve everything they get, but there's a level of it where I go. Sometimes you just have to find the softest way to be like, 
look, you're you're wrong and you're an asshole, but we're going to help you, you know, kind of thing. I feel like there's probably not enough of that. Once again, that's that two sides of my brain where some people piss me off so much that I'm just like, fuck this person for the rest of their life. And then on the other side, I go, well, do I want them to change or do I not want them to change? Is what I'm going to say now actually do more harm than good? I, I don't know. Um, but at the same time, like I feel as part of the metal community, sometimes I feel like, especially if I become more popular, that I'm going to have a responsibility to do those kind of things. I don't do it right now because it's usually not asked of me and usually doesn't come up. But when it does come up, I'm very honest. And I don't think that's ever going to stop. If I became, you know, like a, what's it, what's his name? Uh, um, the needle drop guy on, on, on YouTube. He does oh, the, yes. he, he, he yeah. does album reviews and he's massive. She, you know, hundreds of thousands of subscribers and he makes shitloads of money off of it. If I became that big, I think that I would still, if I was asked, I'd still be pretty outspoken about stuff, but I think I would be a lot more cognizant of in this particular case, what are the words that I should be saying in order to make a difference and not just be combative or whatever, you know? I'm coming from the punk scene again in the hardcore yeah. scene. So I am a person who says you need to be adamant for or against something. Yeah. That said, I think you know, making it as open and welcoming as possible if you're in a similar position to Metallica or if you're Metallica. James Hetfield has said on stage, you know, everybody's welcome. We don't care who you are, what religion yeah. you practice, who you vote for, all that. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, <I'm> like, <laughs> I mean, like the voting thing. But again, I think some people in the audience are white supremacists. So you need to go a little bit farther, you know, because there's people, yeah, you know, who voted for Trump, you know, whatever. That's, But there are people who are literal white supremacists in this audience. And there was a Dean Del Rey, again, at the 40th, he talked about, you know, racism, homophobia, have no place in metal. Yeah. There were audible boos. That's yeah. what I'm talking about. And people yeah. are like, well, he's just being too preachy. I'm like, no, he needs to be very, very decisive in that yeah, position. I, once again, oh, that just goes back. Him. That just goes back to that, that point where I was like saying, like, I don't understand why that bothers people. Like, right. how is that inconveniencing your life at all? Right. It's it, it, it's really weird. I do think that there have been occasions where I have heard in some banter on stage, James say things about not hating other people or people that are different. Oh, um, oh I want to, if you know where that footage is, I would love to hear it because I got, that's the stuff I want to hear from James Hetfield. I really think it was in the middle of one of his big Metallica family things <laughs> okay. that he was doing. That's the stuff I want to hear. And yeah. in terms of that whole thing that happened where there was the person on TikTok, the young person, and people like, oh, she wants to cancel Metallica or whatever. Oh, I yeah. am a minority and thinking that Metallica or the manager or whatever should have had a statement. It doesn't need to be very big, but just something very simple like, yes, there are things we've done in the past that are regrettable. And now, you know, the, whatever. But I don't, yeah, I don't think it needed to have bells and whistles, but just something like, yeah, we did it, some things and it, we are taking corrective actions or something. In that particular case, though, the fans did the work because I don't know if you remember, but every single thing in that girl's video 
was explainable and it, it was all taken out of context. Because mm-hmm. like there's not even that thing where Jason is doing like the weird Nazi walk, oh, but yes. he's do, he's literally doing that in response to how the cops were acting at right. the show. Right. And I'm like, every single one of those things, it's like, well, yeah, they were doing the Hitler impression, but everyone did that kind of shit. It was just being goofy and they're in Germany. And I think it was just, it was yeah. dark humor. And then, so every, I, I can't remember anything in that video where I go, Oh no, that's problematic. I never thought that once. There was no thing in that video that I thought that. No, that that's why I don't think they need to explain everything. Cause there are times in interviews where they're like, Yeah, we've done things that are regrettable. So I don't think they need to explain. And I think their actions have been corrective, but yeah. I think there are always going to be young people, and especially young people who are not metalheads and don't know any of the cues, are not part of the community, who see these old things, which is what happened. Yeah. And so I think just really saying, hey, you know, there's going to be people coming into this who don't have the context. I think just really being very clear about that. And yeah. so this is what we were talking about earlier because they're streaming, because there's all of this, they're, the cultural cues and context are no longer there. And mm-hmm. so if I know nothing about Metallica and I'm just seeing somebody do a goose walk or whatever, yeah, I'm going to be like, yo, why am I into them? They're racist. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I mean. And I think that's really what happened. And what also happened, I know people were like, hey, here's the context of that. There were also people who doxed that person who gave her death threats. And so that is why I think Metallica needs to make a statement. And I think part of that with the stranger, they did it with the stranger things thing. Like we're all family and it doesn't matter when you came in, but I think they need to take a strong position about that kind of stuff as well. And again, it doesn't need to be bells or whistles or explain everything, but if you're Mm -hmm. like, Hey, there are some things that we did that are regrettable. Do not attack people. And you know, they've said, of course, and other messages don't attack people, but I think they need to be consistent across the board with that stuff, not just stranger things or whatever. Yeah. I I also, I I also, I was very annoyed at that video just because I don't like people whose, whose online presence is just to play gotcha with people. Right. Um, (laughs) Because that's like the worst part of the internet where everything is like, like there's so many music content creators out there that their whole thing is talking about how shitty certain music is. And I'm like, why even do that? We don't need that. Right. And so it's, it's pretty aggravating, but once again, that's, you know, some of those people have, you know, hundreds of thousands of subscribers and I have 12,000. So, you know, that's, that's why it works that way. And even, you know, trying to be like, why are you trying to cancel these people at the same time, literally trying to cancel this person you're yeah. saying is trying to cancel. You are doxing this person. You are affecting how this person lives and where they move. There's the cycle that needs to end with that. And so I do appreciate that there were people that came out and said, hey, here's the context of some of the stuff you're addressing. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. And they came to her and said, hey, but there's the other side. And I, it, those things need to be addressed. And so taking yeah. a, a non-allied or whatever, <laughs> Uh, taking a position where it's just like we're not we're not going to take a position everyone needs to take a position on something there's not a time to be and i'm using liberal in the sense of just letting things fester until they just go haywire or whatever we need to confront things up front 
Yeah. And you need to not be liberal about things like injustice. And so I do appreciate things like all within my hands where they're saying, you know, here are systemic issues and we're doing some effort to address that. Obviously you can't do that with like five or 10 or whatever people, Yeah, but they are doing some things and they're saying, you know, every concert money's going to go towards what we're doing. And then there's food banks and all this. So those are the redemptive things I like to see and why I am okay with listening to Metallica and also just watching their growth. I think mm-hmm. that's really the best thing for me and Metallica for me. I keep saying this for me. I see them in more of a philosophical or spiritual way. It's beyond the music to me. And I think with 72 seasons and taking a non allied position, it's, internal it's not they're not doing like hey don't listen to the media except i want to ask you yeah you must burn you heard the episode that we did to me that's more about letting go of the past a lot of people are saying it's about cancel culture and what you said were something about james hetfield sort of not really Having that perspective at this point where he is, I agree with that. I think- you, there's, a, there's a line in that particular song that I think it speaks volumes. And that's that line, question yourself, you may learn. learn. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm just like, oh, that doesn't, that's a very liberal way of thinking. Um, <laughs> you know, and so I'm like, that line alone, I remember even when I, because I went to the thing in the movie theater where they premiered the album. Yes. And and I I just remember hearing that line in the theater and going, "Oh, that that I that was a very loud and clear line to me, James." <laughs> so so I I know where you're coming from. All right, I like those kind of things cuz that's my whole that is my whole thing. I'm just like, "Who who's to say that I'm right or or, or wrong? The only way that I'm going to grow is to constantly just be looking out for ways to get better or change who I am for the better, which is why my shit's always so positive. Cause I'm just like, I'm just going to talk about the shit that I love because the shit that I don't love, who knows five years from now, I could be really into those bands, you know? Exactly. So. And I find for me, I'm an organizer. I find doing this type of work against systems of oppression has made me more optimistic because I also see what's happening in the world outside of these four corners and know that people are doing that work. And what I find when I talk to people, they're like, man, you know, everything sucks and we're not gonna, I'm like, no, you gotta go outside of the four walls of this country because people are doing it. <laughs> yeah. That's 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 good to hear because I really am, because I'm not lying. Like, not only do I shut myself off from a lot of news stuff, but you know i really don't leave my house i don't have very many friends and i do feel like some things are hopeless so when i do hear somebody say oh no it's not all hopeless then it makes me feel better because i go okay cool i don't have to feel that way (laughs) it's really not and i think that's one of the things i do connect with a lot of music in that it's still even though we're talking about music in a lot of cases uh, being an extension of the status quo there's mm-hmm. hip hop, there's metal, there's all these things happening outside of the West that speak to these conditions that are speaking against the status quo. These things are happening. People are still using art as resistance, even yeah. though we may not see it here. Like You talked earlier about hip hop being a tool of resistance. 
it's mm-hmm. happening. Even though Jay-Z is petty bourgeois at this point. And so he's repping for the capitalist class, but that doesn't mean that hip hop in Cuba is being used that way or hip hop in Zimbabwe is being used that way or yeah. hip hop in Guatemala is being used that way. And but, I know but, but, but also, but, but also, do you think somebody like Jay-Z, do you think that you think that he's earned the right to just be comfortable and have that? No, because you don't think so. The thing is, if we're talking about capitalism, the people who are going to be comfortable are the people who exploit labor and who exploit land and steel. Yeah. So, but, but do, I don't know enough. Has done some of that. <laughs> oh, I don't know enough about Jay Z. I just assume uh, that that a lot of those guys like have, have have opened their own charities and stuff like that and are doing things for people. But maybe Jay Z's not. I don't. Know. Oh no, Jay Z said my existence is charity, and a lot of those charity organizations are just tax write offs. And oh yeah, that that's not what I, that's not what I'm talking about. Oh I'm no, talking. I I know I know, but yeah, they're doing it as a means of you know still being able to funnel in more money in their accounts. Oh yeah, because I'm not because yeah. I don't have any problem with people being successful and rich if they've mm-hmm. if they've worked their way to get there. But once you get there, mm-hmm. that's when I expect you know well what are you what are you doing with all of this mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like there's no such thing as a billionaire that has done it without stepping over other people. <laughs> yeah. That's the man I read I read an, an article that was talking about the about Elon Musk and about how mm. he could end completely end homelessness and world hunger like around the world and still have a, a millions of dollars left. Right. And I'm just like well why doesn't he do that? Wouldn't you want to be like the guy that saved everybody or gave everybody, you know, like imagine if like if I was a if I was that rich, I would want to go down in history and being like, I'm the guy that all of a sudden everybody had a hundred thousand dollars in their bank account. <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, and but but I could understand how maybe like that could cause problems in certain ways, but at the same but it's just like at least make the effort to try to make that happen. Because I, I don't understand the idea of just being rich and then that's your life is just being rich and doing rich things. I'm like, well, you can help people and not even bat an eyelash, you know, just so do it. Why not? You know, there was a guy, I can't remember his name, but he owned a a credit checking business or something like that. And he reduced his own income by a billion dollars. And so the lowest, the the lowest a person got on their check was uh, 70,000 a year. And so they, he was asked how much he made. He's like, 70000 I reduced my income by $1 billion, whatever. And so everyone's was like, ooh, ooh, ooh. And I think he got caught sexually harassing people or something or other. Oh, man. Can, I can know, I'm like, <laughs> so it's funny because so many people who were doing reports on this guy critiquing him was like, oh, he's foolish. His company's going to fail and all mm-hmm. of this. And the company's still going. I think he left it. So I don't know what's going to happen. But they kind of went down. And then people willingly, because of how they were treated, willingly reduced their income. And then when the business kind of came back up, the dude repaid what they were owed from all that time. And then it was COVID and everything. So people are like, that's foolish. He's going to lose his business. It's going to fail. And then it was, it got even more successful. <laughs> so this just shows you like this could yeah. work, you know, if it, this was it, done collectively. 
Yeah, it it could, but I mean, yeah, that's it's a perfect world right there. I don't uh <laughs> I don't have enough faith in well, I mean, I have some faith in some of humanity, but some <laughs> of humanity I don't. But yeah, I mean, I guess I guess I can only speculate in, in, until I until I am a billionaire, I can only speculate how that would feel or what I would do. All I know is that I don't make anywhere near that. I don't even make 70,000 a year. I don't make anywhere oh, yeah. near that. But I have a life where I'm like, I have everything that I need. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't have leftovers to give, you know, to 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 give to charities. But, you know, my family is comfortable, you mm-hmm. know, so. So I'm like, well, I can do it for this amount. Like, you know, if I had a billion dollars, I'm like, I could, you know, give some of that away, I think. So I'm going to ask you one more question. Okay. What do you think the healing power of music represents? Oh shit. Um that's a, I don't know how to answer that question. <laughs> um I I honestly think that music is the most amazing thing that's ever been created by humans because so many other things can be broken down to some sort of physical you know, like if, you, if you're watching a movie, you're looking at human beings and it was filmed with a camera and there's all these elements of it where you're seeing things and it's very explainable. But a lot of music, so many little things have to happen for like some just let's just say a song. And then if you're talking about not the people that made the song, but what you're actually experiencing when you hear the song if you wanted to draw a picture of it, you couldn't because like, where is it? It comes out of somebody and then it, you hear it, but what are, what are you hearing? It's such a bizarre thing to me to really think about music existing and how it hits your ears and how it affects your brain and your heart and all of those things. And I'm just like, that's, it feels like such a magical thing to me because you can hear a song that evokes a memory from back in the day or makes you feel better or makes you feel energized. And I'm just like, how lucky are we as a, a race of people that we stumbled across this kind of thing? Like it had to take all of these people. Oh, I make this sound. Oh, wait, I can make this other sound. Oh, let's put those two sounds together and so on and so on and so on. And I'm just like, that is one of the most amazing things. And now we're in the generation where this music is just on the internet and will be available until, you know, the earth is not habitable by humans humans anymore or whatever. It'll be available for everybody and everyone is going to have a different experience with just this sound that people put together. And so that's why talking about this stuff is so important to me because like the healing power would come from literally for somebody like me i deal with anxiety and, and times in my life severe anxiety and music 100 percent is a thing that will help me with get through all of those things it's pretty amazing so yeah so the, i think the healing power of music it represents different things to different people because some people like i say like like i didn't have childhood trauma in the way that other people did and so music will affect them in a, in a healing way in a different way you know mine's specific to me but it could literally be the same exact song that helps me and helps somebody that went through something way worse than i went through i just i think that's fucking amazing that's a very rambling answer but 
that's why I love music so much and I talk about it so much because it it's one of those things that I'm like, if it didn't exist, I don't know if I would even be alive. <laughs> and so, uh, so I'm very thankful for it. You know, you think that answer's rambling, but I think that's a beautiful answer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And I tend to ramble a lot. So, you know, maybe that's why it's cool with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I really appreciate you being on this episode. This was so beautiful. Yeah, it's been it's been great. Thank you. Oh man. So do you have any final words before we end? Um not no, no. I mean, the, go listen to more music and we because um, it's a great, it's a great podcast. And then, if you liked me, go to YouTube and type in old head, and then metal or something because you know old head will bring up other things. But you know, if you're more specific, you can find the stuff that I do. That's that's basically it. I'm just <laughs> I'm not good at plugging myself, so because uh, I'm always just like, yeah, listen to it if you want to or don't, and that's not that's not productive at all. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you being here so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And sure. No problem. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you. 